from the nation's capital, here is tonight's Nations Report. It's news time across the TCI, and coming up in today's newscast, locally, the magistrate court reached a settlement after NHIB was sued. Regionally, Jamaica's Prime Minister comments on debate about moving to Republic status. Internationally, Nigeria plans to reject COVID-19 vaccine donations with short shelf lives. And in sports, A.J. Robinson High becomes the national inter-high basketball champions. With the details, I am Ruthia Robinson. And now, here is tonight's news. The National Health Insurance Board, or the NHIB, on Tuesday released a statement claiming that the magistrate's court had reached an agreeable settlement in the Grisilda Pratt v. NHIB case. The court decided to award Pratt the complainant to the tune of $1,182, which includes $1,080 equivalent to subsistence fees following health services received abroad and $102 in court and bailiff fees. Although Pratt initially lodged court proceedings against the NHIB, claiming they owed her $4,715. According to the statement from the NHIB, they sought to settle outside of court, offering what would have ordinarily been paid as subsistence to a beneficiary on the TAP referral in the Dominican Republic, an agreed amount of $1,160. The statement went on to say that Pratt later refused the agreed payment due to her grievances with the clauses of the settlement agreement. Pratt claimed in her public statement that she refused because she chose not to sign their non-disclosure agreement because she wanted the public to know the extent of their negligence. NHIB reports that they are happy that all parties are satisfied with the outcome. In a statement made by Grisilda Pratt on her public Facebook page, she said that justice was served and she represented herself against the seasoned attorney Guy Chapman. She claimed that NHIP was grossly negligent in their handling of her needs. She accused NHIP of falling below standard, resulting in her having the wrong patient's file along with their NHIP and date of birth, an accusation that NHIB strongly denies in their own statement. Pratt also claimed she was then abandoned in the Dominican Republic at the directions of the medical director of NHIP, who she also summoned to court. She went on to announce that she plans to go to court again against the Ministry of Health for failing to respond to serious complaints made against InterHealth Canada and their faulty machines, adding that next she will be lodging a Supreme Court case against InterHealth Canada TCI and the Cheshire Hall Medical Centre. Moving on to a recent development in the Cruise Centre's reopening and the recent passing of the Beach Vendors Bill, we have Honourable Robert Hall with a report on the arrest of a Grand Turk business owner. Today, Tuesday, marks the second day of the return of cruise business to the nation's capital, Grand Turk. It is also the second day of the beach and coastal vending bill becoming law, having been passed by the House of Assembly and assented to by the governor and gazetted. This controversial bill drew unanimous support from all government members and appointed members as well as the governor's two appointed members with the lead of opposition and his nominated member dissenting. At about 7.10 a.m. and after an absence of 20 months, the first cruise ship, the New Amsterdam, docked at the Grand Turk cruise port. 
A welcome ceremony was held with the, Prime Min with the Premier, Minister of Tourism and other ministers making brief remarks. Carnival representatives and the captain of the ship, the same that captained the first ship to call in some 20 years ago. There was music and treats as guests were welcomed. The day was not without controversy, as Doug Fenimore, whom I observed dancing and waving to guests adjacent to the pair, was unceremoniously cuffed and removed. He returned a second time yesterday and again this morning. He was again cuffed and removed. At about 11.35, I visited the Grand Turk police station to inquire on what basis Mr. Fenimore was being detained. I was told that he was being detained on allegations of soliciting. RTC will keep a watchful eye on that situation. To end off the year, the PM held his Christmas party at his official residence in Grand Turk last night. A large crowd was in attendance. Reporting, this is Robert Hall for RTC. Thank you, Honorable Hall. Back to the local news. The Ministry of Youth, Sports and Culture announced that Youth in Parliament is returning and are asking for applications from people 17 to 29 years old. The Parliament Week will take place between 24th and 28th of January 2022. According to the application form, the Ministry is looking for young people who are articulate with an ability to properly deliver themselves in a public forum. During Parliament Week, selected participants will be asked to submit their views on the topics to be discussed at Youth Parliament, scheduled for Friday, 28th of January. The Ministry plans to have all applicants forwarded to a selection committee who will recommend one person per constituency. These submissions will be forwarded to the Division of Youth's Coordinators of Youth Parliament and selected individuals will be notified. The collection of youth parliamentarians will be announced once those selected have accepted their recommendation. The application deadline is the 5th of January, 2022. On the note of Youth Parliament, in the Senior Parliament, or the House of Assembly, the last session for the year 2021 was held on Monday. To bring a summary report of the bills and debates, here is Honorable Robert Hall. The House of Assembly held its final sitting for the year 2021 at the Helena J. Robinson High School Auditorium, Grand Turk, on Monday afternoon. The Integrity Commission Amendment No. 2 Bill 2021 was debated and passed. So was the House of Assembly, Speaker and other members' Salaries and Allowances Amendment Bill 2021. Government Motion No. 3 of 2021 write-off of business licenses amendment penalties was debated and passed. During their two minutes speeches, all members spoke, thanking God for his mercies while thanking their constituents. There was a warm display of cordiality as members complimented each other and wished everyone a Merry Christmas and a prosperous New Year. Robert Hall reporting for Radio Turks and Caicos. Thank you, Honorable Robert Hall. Still in local news, as per the Ministry of Health's 14th of December report, 
Over the past 24 hours, four new cases of COVID-19 have been identified on the island of Providenciales. The number of active confirmed cases in the TCI now stands at 34, with one new recovery having been reported. 47 new PCR tests were conducted along with 432 new antigen tests. There are no cases that are currently hospitalized. That brings us to the end of this segment of the news. Coming up, it's regional news. This is Newsbreak from the Carib Update News Service. I'm Wendy Chateau reporting. Jamaica predicts good winter tourist season. This is the big story we're tracking this hour on Wednesday, December 15, 2021. Details of this and more straight ahead. Jamaica's tourism minister, Edmund Bartlett, says data indicates that the island is set to have a strong winter tourist season with a steady inflow of tourists, which should enable the destination to end 2021 with an excellent showing of 1.6 million visitors and over $2 billion U.S. billion in earnings. The season, which begins on December 15, should see similar occupancy levels to 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic impacted the island, with the Jamaica Hotel and Tourist Association, JHTA, projecting an average of 65% occupancy in hotels across the island. Based on recent data, the demand for Jamaica is also 38% of 2019 against the world demand of 24%. Jamaica's health ministry has started the rollout of Sinopharm COVID-19 vaccine. The news release from the ministry says members of the public 18 years and older can book a vaccination appointment to receive the first of two doses of the vaccine. A shipment of the vaccine arrived on November 27 from the People's Republic of China. The ministry says Sinopharm will be available at select vaccine sites island-wide. The two-dose vaccine requires a period of three to four weeks between doses. UK Home Secretary Priti Patel is facing legal action for the Windrush Compensation Scheme's failure to pay victims, with just 5% receiving money in the four years since the scandal came to light. Two groups, Windrush Lives and Good Law Project, are asking for control of the Home Office-run scheme to be given to an independent organization to ensure victims receive long-awaited justice. Launched in response to the Windrush scandal that broke in 2018, the scheme has been hampered by extensive delays and bureaucratic hurdles. In a 24-page pre-action protocol letter seen by the independent newspaper, the Home Secretary is given a December 23 deadline to cease operating the scheme. The Windrush generation are people, including Jamaicans, who arrived in Britain between 1948 and 1973, many of whom were later wrongfully classified by the Home Office as illegal immigrants. Many lost jobs and their homes, were denied health care and threatened with deportation. This is Newsbreak from the Carib Update News Service. In more news, at least 50 people were killed late Monday after a truck carrying fuel exploded in the Haitian city of Cap Haitian. According to the city's deputy mayor, Patrick Almanor, they were all burned alive and it is impossible to identify them. Several others were injured. It's reported that the truck driver lost control of the vehicle as he swerved to avoid a motorcycle taxi and the tanker flipped over. Haiti's Prime Minister Ariel Henry said there will be three days of national mourning throughout the island in memory of the victims of a tragedy that has devastated the entire country. 
Scores of passengers aboard a Caribbean Airlines flight from Miami to Piaco, Trinidad on Monday were left stranded for 30 hours in Puerto Rico after an emergency landing there due to the death of a passenger. The flight had 146 passengers on board. Carl's flight, BW483, was en route to the Piaco International Airport when about halfway through the, its journey, around 6 p.m. on Monday, it landed in Puerto Rico after flight stewards alerted the captain of the medical emergency in which the passenger died. Carl did not disclose what happened to the aircraft to prevent the passengers from traveling on to Trinidad, but said in a statement Tuesday that another aircraft was sent to relieve the passengers by midnight Monday. However, that aircraft was also unable to leave due to circumstances outside of the airline's control. This has been another edition of Newsbreak from the Carib Update News Service, the Caribbean's newsroom. Reporting this hour, I am Wendy Chateau. Prime Minister of Jamaica, Andrew Holness, is promising that the issue of the country's future, constitutional status, will be addressed shortly, even as he warned that there must not be empty symbolism moving forward. In recent days, Jamaicans have raised the issue of the island replacing Britain's Queen Elizabeth as the head of state and following Caribbean community or CARICOM countries such as Barbados, Guyana, Dominica, and Trinidad and Tobago. Jamaica's former Prime Minister, PJ Patterson, has said the removal of the Queen as the head of state cannot wait on a full review of the Constitution. Patterson, 86, who served as Prime Minister from 1992 to 2006, has written to the Prime Minister, Andrew Holness, and the leader of the opposition, Mark Golding, urging them to swiftly begin the process for removal of the Queen as Jamaica prepares to celebrate its 60th year of independence. Holness said the fact that as Jamaica approaches its 60th year of independence, there has been a lot of discussion on the issue, promising that the question raised would be addressed shortly. However, Holness said he would like to see Jamaica accomplish certain things before taking the step to replace the Queen. In his address, Holness made a call for an entertainment institute funded by tourism to be established in the island. Holness added, they need to see an institute that is going to train persons in entertainment and culture, so that their local people who are naturally talented, naturally gifted, can be exposed to a wide variety of other forms of entertainment that they themselves can become professionals in. And he thinks that the tourism industry could give Jamaica this as a gift for their 60th year. He told the ceremony that the island remains favorable for foreign direct investment despite the impact of the coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic, and that his administration continues to create a positive and resilient fiscal environment which has been reaffirmed by international rating agencies. A New York man pleaded guilty yesterday in the Eastern District of New York to sexually assaulting a five-year-old child abroad in Grenada. In a media statement under the U.S. Department of Justice states that according to court documents, during a trip to Grenada in October of 2019, the man who is 27 years old of Brooklyn, a dual United States and Grenadian citizen, forced a five-year-old boy to perform oral sex on him while the boy was temporarily left in his care. He previously pleaded guilty to Grenadian charges related to the abuse, but did not receive a sentence of imprisonment. Rather, the Grenadian court fined him $1,500 and required him to pay $600 compensation to the victim. The man pleaded guilty to engaging in illicit sexual conduct with a minor in a foreign place and faces a maximum sentence of 30 years in prison. 
A federal district court judge will determine any sentence after considering the U.S. sentencing guidelines and other statutory factors. Assistant Attorney General Kenneth A. Polite Jr. of the Justice Department's Criminal Division, U.S. Attorney Breon Peace for the Eastern District of New York, and Acting Special Agent in Charge Rick J. Patel for Homeland Security Investigations, or HSI, New York, made the announcement. HSI New York's Child Exploitation Investigations Unit investigated the case with valuable assistance provided by the Caribbean Affiliate Office and the Royal Grenada Police Force. Trial Attorney Charles Schmidt of the Criminal Division's Child Exploitation and Obscenity Section, or the CEOS, and Assistant U.S. Attorney Laura Zuckerweis for Eastern District of New York are prosecuting the case. This case was brought as part of Project Safe Childhood, a nationwide initiative to combat the epidemic of child sexual exploitation and abuse, launched in May of 2006 by the Department of Justice. Students and teachers in Anguilla, both at primary and secondary school level, will return to the physical classroom in the new year. The Ministry and Department of Education says students and teachers will return to school following their normal schedules, effective 10th of January 2022, until otherwise stated. With the resumption of face-to-face -face teaching and learning, new COVID-19 health protocols will be introduced in an added effort to protect staff and students. There will be changes to how positive cases are managed at the school level. The previous approach of quarantining entire classes will be discontinued and instead will be replaced with on-site rapid testing. Only the students testing positive for COVID-19 will be asked to isolate. The school's health team, or nurses, will administer rapid tests. Those with elevated temperatures who appear symptomatic or have been directly exposed to a known positive case will be rapid tested. Those with positive test results will be asked to isolate and their close contacts will, in turn, be tested and or asked to quarantine. The situation remains fluid and the ministry says it will continue to monitor the situation closely. Any subsequent changes will be announced on the 4th of January, 2022. That brings us to the end of regional news. World News is next. Nigeria will no longer accept COVID-19 vaccines with short shelf lives after 1 million doses have expired in Africa's most populous nation before the shots could have been used, a government official said. While some of the doses given to Nigeria were within a few months of expiring, authorities have said that other donated vaccines had just weeks left to be given to the people before becoming unusable. The head of Nigeria's National Primary Healthcare Development Agency told reporters that expired vaccines not used in time now will be destroyed. He did not specify what Nigerian officials would consider too short a shelf life. Nigeria has only been able to fully vaccinate 1.9% of its 206 million people. While at least 30 million doses are currently available, authorities say the rush to distribute almost expired ones has created an additional burden. Other African countries also have struggled to use donated doses in time. Malawi burned nearly 20,000 expired vaccines earlier this year, and South Sudan also said it had to destroy tens of thousands of doses. Masadiso Moeti, the World Health Organization's regional director for Africa, said Tuesday that the problem of expiring vaccines is a global one. The number of doses that have gone unused in Africa has represented less than a quarter of 1%. 
She said it is necessary to dispel the impression that even as they are expressing concern about access to vaccine supplies, there are millions of doses being wasted, expiring in Africa. She continues saying that is not the case. Two weeks after Nigeria recorded its first Omicron variant case, the country is starting to see an increase in the number of new infections. However, there has been no evidence so far of increased hospitalizations. More than 800,000 Americans have now died from the coronavirus, the highest recorded national death toll from the global pandemic. It comes as the U.S. reached 50 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 on Monday. Most deaths have been recorded among the unvaccinated and the elderly, and more Americans died in 2021 than in 2020. The U.S. again is seeing deaths rising at an alarming rate. The last 100,000 deaths came in just the past 11 weeks, a quicker pace than at any other point aside from last winter's surge. Dr. Kerry Althoff, an epidemiologist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, said the waves of illness that they are experiencing will continue until the population level immunity is high enough to prevent them. Quite simply, they're not there yet. It has been more than 650 days since the first American patient dying from COVID-19 was reported in Seattle, Washington. Since the Pfizer vaccine, the first jab to be approved in the U.S., was rolled out last winter, nearly 300,000 more fatalities have been recorded. In April of 2021, two more vaccines, Moderna and a single-dose Johnson & Johnson, were approved, and all three vaccines were made available to adults of all ages. The 800,000 total exceeds the populations of cities such as Boston and Washington, D.C. The milestone means nearly twice as many Americans have died during the pandemic as in World War II. The U.S. death toll far exceeds that of any other country. A former U.S. football player who police say shot dead six people in April has been found to have been suffering from a degenerative brain disease. A postmortem on Philip Adams, who took his own life, revealed he had chronic traumatic encephalopathy, known as CTE. The disease is linked to repeated head trauma. Officials say Phillips shot dead Dr. Robert Leslie, his wife, and two of his grandchildren, along with two men working at Dr. Leslie's home. The 32-year-old later killed himself after a standoff with police in South Carolina. As a professional U.S. footballer, he played 78 NFL games for six different teams, including the San Francisco 49ers and the New York Jets. He started playing the sport when he was seven and retired from the NFL in 2016. Police say his motive for the attack remains unclear, but his family consented for his brain to be tested for CTE, which has been found in post-mortem tests on hundreds of NFL players. A neuropathologist who studied Adam's brain revealed on Tuesday that he had stage 2 CTE, described as unusually severe, in the frontal lobes of his brain. Dr. Anne McKee, who serves as director of Boston University's CTE Center, said Adam's playing career had put him at high risk of the disease and compared his brain scan to that of another former NFL player, Aaron Hernandez, who took his own life in prison for murder in 2017. Researchers say that the condition is linked to issues such as memory loss and aggression as well as dementia at later stages. A statement from Adam's family said they were not surprised by the results, but were shocked to learn about the severity of his injuries. They have previously spoken about how his mental health had degraded fast before his death and blamed his playing career. They expressed hope in their statement that the findings would help bring awareness to CTE 
adding that Philip is not the first to battle with this disease and he will not be the last. Police say Dr. Robert Leslie, his wife Barbara, and their young grandchildren, Ada and Noah, were killed by Adam at their home in Rock Hill, South Carolina, earlier this year. Two air conditioning technicians working at the property, James Lewis and Robert Shook, also died in the gun attack. York County Sheriff Kevin Tolson said Adam's connection to the family remains unclear. Officials found incoherent writings and more than 20 guns at his property and says Adams had medication in his system at the time of the attack. That concludes news from around the world. Stay tuned with 89FM. Sports is next. Jay Robinson High School basketball team did not come to play in this year's Interscholastic Basketball Championship, taking the champion title home with them over the weekend. There were two championship games held on Saturday. In the first, Marjorie Basin High went against Maranatha Academy, scoring 64 and 62 respectively, with the second game having H.J. Robinson snipers go against Clement Howell's Eagles, ending in a 63-62 score. Members of RTC's Sports Watch team got the chance to speak with the coaches and players about the championship games. After losing to the Eagles on their own turf in Grand Turk, the Snipers coach said that they took notes from their loss and implemented that into their practice and felt the win was more impactful because of their previous losses. Uh, schematically, what we did was we came with a little bit more aggression. We switched over to a full court press. And it also helped that we had a bit more players in a different variations of size. But speaking mentally, what helped us was we embraced adversity and learned from our mistakes over in Granta. We made it an emphasis where we wanted to get the guys conditioned and we, pre we pressed throughout the entire practice. And it made some of the guys step up. Some guys who didn't show up in Granta, it made them be able to withstand that pressure. It does make it sweet. It makes it sweeter because we've lost to them twice, you know. And we have they had that bragging rights over us. We became the David to the Goliath. So it makes it a lot sweeter to knock the giant down. It makes it makes it a great feeling. And now we tend to we start to become a Goliath and it's up to us to now humble ourselves and go back down to the bottom of the mountain. Meanwhile, the coach of the Clement Howell Eagles, Kevin Harvey, gave his compliments to H. J. Robinson's coach. The judgment of doing as well as they're supposed to do. I think it was a misstatement because I told Coach Amadi and Coach Pooch them, this year of trial and to know who you are, this was the year. Because everybody started from ground zero. So I think my team did what they're supposed to do. We have to take hats off and give it to Amadi on this one. He won it. We're not going to sugarcoat it for him. Hats off to Amadi. He also shared his assessment of what the Eagles could have done better and what they prepared to do for the next time around. We have to just get mentally ready. Physically, we got a lot of things in place, but the, uh, the game is 80% mental. 
rookie, young players, and on both sides of the fence have to mature in the game, and you got to give them time to do that. The MVP, Davari Daniel, point guard of H.J. Robinson Snipers, scored 22 points, two steals, and three rebounds. He mentioned why he thinks his team won the championship. Uh, attacking the press, we stayed very calm and we didn't rush the ball because that's what their press was making us do. Like they set up the press for us to rush the ball and for us to make the simple mistakes, but we stayed composed and very calm and simply beat their press very easily. He also made mention of his nervousness at the beginning of the game, which was absolved by the time he was back on the court in the second half. Uh, no, my mindset coming into the whole coming into the whole game was I was kind of nervous, had butterflies, but after I came on, I. I was very nervous playing, getting a lot of turnovers. Coach took me out and then I came back in and I don't know, like I switched on or something, but I started killing and playing good. <laughs> yeah, so definitely I was in the zone, but uh, I mainly focused on because we were down like 20 something. So I was focused on getting us back up and getting us back in the game because we did a lot of training back in Grand Turk. And, this is the moment we came down here for to win a championship. That was Davari Daniel, MVP of the Interscholastic Basketball Championship. Still in sports, the legal wrangling between the USA Gymnastics and the victims of sexual abuse by former national team doctor Larry Nassar, among others, is over. The fight for substantive change within the sport's national governing body is just beginning. A federal bankruptcy court in Indianapolis on Monday confirmed a $380 million settlement between USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and the hundreds of victims, ending one aspect of the fallout of the largest sexual abuse scandal in the history of U.S. Olympic movement. Over 90% of the victims, who number more than 500, voted in favor of the tentative agreement reached in September. That agreement called for $425 million in damages but a modified settlement of $380 million was conditionally approved by the court. More than 300 victims were abused by Nassar, with the remaining victims abused by individuals affiliated with the USA Gymnastics in some capacity. That brings us to the end of our sports coverage and wraps up today's newscast. I will be right back with your headlines. Some of the headlines we covered today. Locally, the magistrate court reached a settlement after NHIB was sued. Regionally, Jamaica's Prime Minister comments on debate about moving to Republic status. Internationally, Nigeria to reject COVID-19 vaccine donations with short shelf lives. And in sports, H.J. Robinson High became the national inter-high basketball champions. Thank you for joining us on today's newscast. If you missed today's newscast, you can check out our podcast page or simply find these and other stories on our website or on the Android Play Store app for Radio Turks and Caicos. I am Ruthia Robinson. Enjoy the remainder of your day. Join us again tomorrow evening at 6 p.m. for another edition of The Nation's Report.